It's good to be with you this morning, church. Good morning and welcome here today. It's really my privilege to be with you and what a special occasion it is for us to gather every Sunday in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we unite together this morning to worship our King in prayer, worship, and the Word, let us never forget the importance and privilege of the gathering of the saints and the significance of the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Did you hear that, church? But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And let us take comfort this morning with the encouraging words in Matthew chapter 18, where it says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Church, isn't that such an encouragement to know that the Lord is with us here this morning? I know we all know these words, we've heard them before, but I want you to really perceive it and believe it today. The Lord is with us here in this place, and may our hearts be so sensitive to that reality as we've come out of worship and as we now spend time in God's Word that the Lord Himself would do a transformational work in each of our lives. Let's give the Lord some praise in this place. Amen. Yes, Lord, we thank You for Your presence. It is all about you, and it is all for you. Church, let's have a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts for what the Lord wants to say to us through his word today. Father God, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus this morning, and we ask that you would firstly give us a new appreciation to be in the house of the Lord and together as your church. And Lord, secondly, that you would allow us to understand the mysteries of godliness and that through the revelation of your word, we would become Christians that represent you in this world and truly impact those around us. Lord, we don't just want to be Christians that talk a good game. We want to be Christians that walk it out, contend for the faith in our own generation, lead others to Christ, and leave a legacy that will be pleasing to you. Lord, therefore, come and have your way in each of us this morning, we ask. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen and amen. Well, church, this morning we find ourselves in part four of the sermon series that we've titled Contending for the Faith in a Transitioning Culture. I had no idea when I started this message that it would become a series of messages, but in my time of preparation and researching the various points and topics we've been discussing, I've come to realize the weight and significance of what we're covering here, what we're dealing with here. I've come to realize the spiritual forces at play behind this demonic agenda. And to be honest with you, I have felt more burdened standing in this pulpit during this series than I have since I started preaching back in 2018. I don't feel anxious. I don't feel afraid or uncertain in any way. I just feel burdened. And I have this sense of urgency of, for us as Christians to contend for the faith, this objective body of truth that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
The faith that was once for all justified, signed, sealed, and delivered by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The faith that will remain unchanged in an ever-changing world. And it's not like the Bible hasn't warned us about this. How evil will be called good and good will be called evil and how sin will be celebrated in the way that it is today. Because the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, it says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, the Bible says to us that we must avoid such people. So it's not like the Bible hasn't warned us about this. But church, I think that's where the urgency I feel, and I'm sure you feel, is coming from. Because what the Bible predicted would happen is actually unfolding before our very eyes. And at times, it's almost like you want it just to be a bad dream that you can wake up from. Or that the Lord would just come and take us away from all of this so that we don't have to deal with it and face the spiritual giant of this generation. Because like I've said previously, the giant of this generation is not out there somewhere on the horizon anymore. It's heading straight toward us. Because it does not like what we say. It does not like what we stand for. Some of us don't like to hear these things. Some of us don't like to hear that we are going to face more persecution as Christians. We say things like, come Lord Jesus, come. Or Lord, just come and take me home and I'll fight the enemy with you when you return to the earth for the battle of Armageddon. Then I'll fight for you. Then I'll fight with you. But church, allow me to try and change your perspective a little this morning. As the church, I believe that we find ourselves in an incredibly pivotal and exciting moment of history. Not because of the normalization and legalization of sin or even the celebration of it, but because I believe we are entering a time where we will see the unifying, purifying, clarifying, empowering, and mobilizing of the church. Amen? There's a statement a pastor once made. He said, over the past 200 years or so, the church has become a tree without wind And because of that, its roots have not gone deep enough and produced enough fruit. In other words, what's he saying? We need more wind. Some of you are still thinking, but but what does that mean, Pastor? Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Who has ever heard of the Biosphere 2 experiment? Where's our students this morning? Anybody? Any hands this morning? Nobody. Nobody. The Biosphere 2 was constructed between 1987 and 1991. 1991 was when I matriculated, by the way. And all those people are thinking, geez, are you that old? 
Yeah. You know, when you tell your, your, your children that you're a certain age and you're born a certain year, they think you're seriously ancient, right? <laughs> ancient of days, they say. <laughs> Fossilized. <laughs> the Biosphere 2 was created then and was originally meant to demonstrate the viability of closed ecological systems to support and maintain human life in outer space as a substitute for the Earth's biosphere. It remains the largest closed ecological system ever created, and it's this perfect climate-controlled environment. If you could get a picture in your mind, it's kind of this massive greenhouse. So in this experiment, eight people went into this controlled environment, and they lived there for a couple of years to see what would happen and how they could thrive. There was a coral reef. There were plants. They had animals, they farmed their own food, and they had this whole ecosystem going to prove that they could live in this perfect little biodome. Interestingly, though, after two years while living in this controlled environment, what they found is that the trees were, were growing really quickly. And you would assume so because it's this massive greenhouse, right? But then all of a sudden, two years into this experiment, the trees just started falling over and collapsing. And you know why that happened, church? Because there was no wind in the biodome. You see, what the wind does to a tree is it, it's, it creates what's called stress wood. Have you heard of that before? Stress wood develops when small cracks are formed in the tree's wood when put under stress. It's when the tree is getting pushed kind of all day, every day, in every direction from the wind. It becomes incredibly resilient. It becomes strengthened so that it can withstand more. The other thing that it does is it will position itself to the sun to get more and optimal sun absorption. And that wasn't happening in this little climate-controlled area. And another thing that happens to stress wood is that the roots go deeper and deeper as the wind blows harder and harder. The roots go deeper and the tree gets stronger as it responds to this constant resistance. And church, that's why I'm not worried by what's coming. Yes, there's a sense of urgency, but I'm not worried. Because guess what? The church isn't going anywhere. I'm actually encouraged because the church is going to be strengthened when it finds the stress wood optimally positioned to get more of the sun with its roots going deeper because this is where the fruit of Christ will be displayed. Amen, Amen somebody. Amen. When the church gets to this place, it will no longer be popular to go to church or just a duty to fulfill. But rather we will do it because of the Lord and because it's where we find our encouragement to be the church and to contend for the faith in a transitioning culture. So I want to say to you this morning, be encouraged when you see these things taking place. Something significant is about to happen as the roots go deeper and deeper. And what the enemy has meant for evil, the Lord will turn it for his good. Amen. Amen. So church, last week we started looking at the how-to guide for contending for the faith in a transitioning culture. And let's have another look at that list together. You can put that first slide up for us. Number one, truth over a transitioning culture because facts aren't affected by trends or feelings. And within that theme, we looked at speaking the truth in love over just truth or love. 
Because as we hold the line on absolute truth, we do it with gentleness and respect. But the one without the other, truth without love or love without truth, will either lead you to becoming a nuisance to people because you could just be arrogant, or it could lead to negligence as you applaud people on their way to hell without telling them the truth. The second sub-point we looked at was biblical sexuality over cultural sexuality, and we discussed how biblical sexuality is simple, unchanging, and life-giving, but how cultural sexuality is complex, ever-changing, and life-taking. And then finally, we discussed how we should be living in covenant over a decaying culture. In other words, as we remain in a covenant relationship with the Lord, we should be living holy and godly lives in a transitioning culture as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Because we have a responsibility to walk in the light as He is in the light. Amen? Today, as we move on, I want us to look together at the remaining themes of actively discipling before the world does and then be against the movement. Put that next slide up for us. Be against the movement, but for the people. Right? Actively discipling before the world does. And then be against the movement, but for the people. So let's start with the first one. Church, what does it mean to actively disciple before the world does? Let me start by saying that there is no more neutral ground. We have got to disciple before the world does because the world or culture is discipling our children and our neighbors and our colleagues and even us 24-7, 365 days of the year. With the devices that we hold within our palms to the programs we watch on television, to the music, to social media, and to everything else that is constantly bombarding our senses there's an ongoing discipleship by the culture, and so we've got to disciple first and foremost, just as culture always is. And what does the word discipleship or disciple mean? It has a very broad meaning, and to become a disciple is, is not just a simple thing. But the general meaning of the word disciple is used to identify someone who is committed to a recognized leader or teacher. Now keep that in mind. I've got an interesting question for you. This is not a theological question, right? There's no perfect answer. But who do you think is and was the greatest disciple maker in the history of known religion? I think most of us would say that Jesus is the best disciple maker of all time. We would agree on that. But who would be second? Would it be Moses? Would it be Peter? Would it be the Apostle Paul? Arguably, church, the second greatest disciple maker in the history of known religion is Satan. Because Satan is whispering his lies and infiltrating the minds of people and transitioning culture through the media and social media, through Hollywood, through education, and all the rest of it. He is very cunning in his ways. He is a liar and the father of lies. And metaphorically speaking, he is the lead and teacher that most of the world are following today. And so what did Jesus do to counter Satan's so-called discipleship? Because Satan always counterfeits what God does, right? 
What did, say, what did God give us to counter that? He gave us the Great Commission. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Church, this is what we are to be about as Christians. We need to make disciples who are committed to and follow their leader and teacher and our leader and teacher, Jesus Christ. And what does it say here? It says, once you've trusted in Jesus, once you've established salvation, it says, teaching them. Teaching who? All the nations, right? Teaching all the nations to observe all things that I've commanded you, all things right. Because church, let me tell you something. This is not an a la carte menu where you decide, you go through this and you say, listen, I, I think this part will offend some people. Or this part, I, I know that they certainly won't agree with. So, so I'm going to skip some of these parts, right? But I'll just give them a little sprinkle plus Jesus, but minus that part. No. It says, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Because they're not a bunch of suggestions or inferences or a list of fancy quotes, right? They are commands. And they lead to life and peace. They lead to blessing. Amen? Amen. Romans chapter 8 verse 6 says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And to be spiritually minded is to know God's commands and obey them. Amen? It leads to life and peace. As I said a couple of weeks back, one of the things that Satan is attacking and going after is the most vulnerable and precious of all of God's creation, both inside the womb through the means of abortion and outside the womb through the means of indoctrination. He's going after our children. So we've got to disciple before culture does. And as parents, we must teach our children early and often. We must have healthy homes, and by this I mean spiritually healthy. We must teach our children early and often, which means that we talk to our children, even from a young age, about things like transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion. Speak openly about the fact that some boys decide to dress as a girl, and some girls decide to dress as a boy, and then you add... Did you know that the Bible says that you should never dress as the opposite sex? And that is actually a sin? That's actually in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 22. Speak openly to them about same-sex marriage. And that some children have two parents that are, that are the same gender. Speak to them about the fact that some mothers kill their children while they're pregnant. Talk about this stuff. Not to make them become haters, because that's not how Christians behave, but to constantly make them aware of what's going on out there and how all of this fluidity actually lines up to the Word of God. Have very open and honest conversations, because church, if we don't, they are going to be getting it from the world. So get this, we can either entrust the world to teach them, or the friends to teach them, or social media to teach them, or Hollywood to teach them, 
Or we can do what Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. Verses nine or 5 through 9 tells us, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's an all-day, everyday thing. And that's what is required in actively discipling before the world does. Now, church, something else I need to tell you. Having a healthy home also means screening what comes into your home over Netflix and DSTV and Prime and the Internet. What does that mean? Know what your children are doing. Parents, I give you the permission to get into their business, okay? Know what they're doing. Do you know that the daily average screen time on devices for children 8 to 12 is 5 hours a day? The average daily screen time for youth ages 13 to 17 is 8 hours a day. Parents, if you don't take control of this, you are losing the influence over your kids to the device in their hands, and it's feeding their soul lies and misinformation. You better take control of that, or you will lose them to this transitioning culture. And you may say, but pastor, isn't that a bit dramatic? Isn't that a bit over the top? In in any case, I don't want to be a a helicopter parent. I don't want to be one of those parents that are always hovering over my children. I want to give my children the the freedom to make their own choices to do what is right. You know what? You're right. Don't be a helicopter parent. You be a fighter jet parent. You be a battleship parent. That's what you need to be. Amen? Because you need to lock into whatever is attacking your child's mind and heart, and you fight for them. You fight for their souls. You ought to be on them like white on rice or cheese on an omelet. Amen? And I'm not talking about being overly controlling or bullying. Right? That's not what we do. I'm talking about spending quality time with them and teaching them all the things that God has commanded them as a substitute for just giving them the freedom to do whatever they want because you're too busy or consumed with your own stuff. Parents, the responsibility is on us to create a home where children thrive in a Christ-like environment. Because you want the hearts of your children to be bonded to the Lord and to be bonded to you more than to the world. Amen? Amen. Parents, this is our responsibility. And don't just be of the mindset, you know what, every child is doing it these days, so you know what, I'm just going to let them do that. Right? You can have that, but remember, you are going to stand before the Lord one day and give an account for how you have either actively discipled your children or how you have allowed the world to assume that responsibility. Amen, somebody. Even if it's a quiet amen. (laughs) Now, actively discipling before the world does is not just limited to your own home, right? 
We can't say that, you know, I'm just going to be salt and light in my house, but I'm not going to be salt and light in the school or in the workplace or when I'm with my unbelieving friends. No, actively discipling before the world does, and I want you to get this, church, means creating atmospheres for breakthrough in every strata of society, restoring lives and transforming cities and nations. It means that we take on that responsibility of our vision wherever we go and whatever cause the Lord leads us to get involved in. Because the Bible commands us in Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12, it says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Because if you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not pray, repay man according to his work? Actively discipling before the world does because it's our responsibility to make disciples who are committed to and follow the one and only true and eternal leader and teacher and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Let discipleship begin with us. And may I add, let repentance begin with us, or we will have no moral authority or integrity to speak otherwise. Church, the last theme I want us to look at in our approach of how to contend for the faith in a transitioning culture is to be against the movement, but for the people. In other words, be against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms behind this demonic agenda. Be against that, but for the people. There's a true story that I want to share with you this morning about a woman named Sarah Thompson, a devoted Christian who was working as a teacher at a public school. During the school's annual LGBTQR plus awareness week, the administration asked her to participate in a panel discussion about supporting and affirming LGBTQI plus students. Sarah, recognizing her beliefs, her religious beliefs, that view homosexuality as contrary to biblical teachings, respectfully declined to be a part of the panel. In explaining her decision, Sarah emphasized her commitment to loving all people regardless of their sexual orientation. She mentioned that she had close friends and family members who identified as homosexual or transgender and that she cared for them deeply. However, Sarah expressed that she couldn't compromise her personal beliefs by actively endorsing something she considered inconsistent with her faith. Sarah's refusal caused some initial tension, and there was even a point where they considered removing her from the school, as there were concerns about her intentions and possible discrimination. However, her colleagues and superiors recognized her sincere love for her students and colleagues, regardless of their sexual orientation. So rather than penalize her, they assigned her to reorganize or organize a separate event where she could emphasize the importance of respecting others while still adhering to her beliefs. Now, we know these type of things don't always turn out this way. But this specific experience became known for Sarah for her ability to bridge the gap between her religious convictions 
and her genuine care for the LGBTQI plus community. And listen to this church, loving them and discipling them, not condemning them, but like Jesus on a rescue mission for them with truth and grace. Be against the movement, but for the people. And by the way, this is important. If someone's struggling with homosexuality and transgenderism, the goal for them is not heterosexuality. The goal for them is first Christ. That they would become Christ-like and they, they would become a follower of Christ. And conversely, if someone is an unbelieving heterosexual person, the goal shouldn't be for them marriage, right? That, that would come, but the goal first should be Christ. That may be a result of repentance, that may be the result of someone that's in a transgender or same-sex lifestyle that having trusted in Christ, a fruit of repentance will become marriage and children. Praise God. But the goal first is Christ. And the goal for us, church, all is Christ. And then different fruits can and will come about because of the life-giving power of Jesus Christ. Amen? At church, when I say be against the movement but for the people, what I'm not saying is be an ally of the movement. We are not to be culture's allies. We are countercultural. We are to be Christ's ambassadors, right? Because we are not an ally of transgenderism. We are not an ally of the LGBTQI plus movement. We are not an ally of abortion. We are countercultural because we are Christ's ambassadors in a transitioning culture. So, what then, you may ask? Why must I be against the movement but for the people? Why is that important? Why can't I just separate myself from, from these people and they must do what they want to do and I'll do what I want to do? Right? Why can't I just be that type of Christian? Let me tell you why. When Jesus walked this earth, he was against oppression of the poor, against extortion and theft, but you know what? He was for Levi and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who is said in traditional writings to have become the bishop of Caesarea. And Levi, who became Matthew, was a tax collector, but became one of the apostles of the Lord. Jesus was against the movement. He was against the sin, but he was for these people. Jesus was against lust and fornication and adultery. And yet he was for the woman at the well, and he was for the woman caught in adultery, whom they wanted to stone. Jesus is and was against Satan and all of the demonic realm. And yet he was for Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven demons came. And he was for the Gerasene demoniac who had a legion of demons inside of him. He went through all of that for that one singular soul to be saved. Because he was against the movement of Satan, but for the individual. He was against the pharisaical system that was just dead religion, heaping up condemnation on people. He even called the Pharisees the sons of, of Satan. But he was for Nicodemus. And he was for Saul, who we now know as the Apostle Paul. He was for them. And you know what else, church? Jesus against alcoholism and addiction and sexual sin and every other sin you and I have ever committed. 
to thank God he was for us. Thank God that he sent someone into our lives that started discipling us to Christ. So church, that's why we are to be against the movement before the people. Because personally, I thank God that he condemned every sin that I ever committed. But he was still for me, he was still for Ryan. And he sent someone into my life that eventually led me to his saving grace. And let's be honest, that's true of just about every single one of us here. Amen. And so church, the people outside of these walls, don't be against them. You should be their truest friend. Not their best friend who celebrates them and celebrates every single thing that they do and just applauds them all the way to hell. No, don't be their best friend. Be their truest friend that loves them when the bottom falls out. The friend that speaks the truth in love over just truth or love. Amen? So as we close out this series, I think in part, we have an idea of what it means to contend for the faith in a transitioning culture. To contend for this objective body of truth because it matters. The faith matters. The finished work of the cross and what that eternally signifies for people's souls matters. And even if it seems like we're the crazy ones because we're the only ones that are running away from the cliff while everyone else is running towards it, even if it seems like we have lost our minds, we must be willing to stand firm and contend for the faith in our own moment of history. Because we want to be living warriors for Jesus Christ who are willing to step forward and take on the giant of this generation that defies the armies of the living God. And I'm going to leave you with the same scripture that I did a couple of weeks back from Ephesians chapter 6, which says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Christian, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. To stand.